Hi, my name is John DeBenedict, and I play Foken on Zodiac Task Force, and you're listening to Raving Lunatic Media. I'll crush you! Warning. The following program contains content that is intended for mature audiences only, and may be uncomfortable and triggering. Listener's discretion is advised. Better buckle up, buttercups. <gasps> We're back in action, baby. Dear listener, do not listen to this heretic, for he knows not what he says. He is a fraud. He doesn't even write these episodes anymore. I know everything about Matt Bruckstar. First off, he just... Uh, Chen? What are you what are you doing in here? Nothing! Get out of my room! Aloha everybody and welcome back to Cold Case Chase, a show where I recount unsolved crimes, murders, and mysteries to my amazingly good friend. Shane. Say hi, Shane. Hey, everybody. <laughs> it's been a while since me and Shane have talked, and we just had like a 45-minute conversation, and I always I always remember how much I love talking to you, but every <laughs> single time we talk, I'm just like, this is amazing. Yes, I, it's, it's good to catch up. It's been way too long. I've been yeah. way too busy, but now I'm not. So here we are again, doing the good things. Doing some fun stuff. Well, not fun. We're talking about death. There's like one death that happens in this. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> At least there's not multiple. Um, it could so be worse. It, it could, could be, be worse. talking about my death. Yeah, don't don't put that on me right now. <laughs> I, can't, I can't have that on my heart. Um, but it's always back to be, or it's always good to be back in the factory. You know, just kind of pumping out awesome content for you guys to listen to. Um, we're gonna get to some of that awesome content a lot later in the show, but today we're talking about the Circleville letters. So we are going letters. Yes, Circleville. We're going. I just wanted to make sure I heard it right. Yeah, we're going a little out of order. I originally had this one after the one that we're gonna do next week. Okay. Next time. Uh. But we're switching them around. I'm sorry, John. I know this must be very disappointing for you. And I hope that you don't have any references in here to that episode. Because guess what? We're doing them out of order. Um, <laughs> speaking of John, though, last time I had him on, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to that episode, Shane, but it was a lot of fun. Um, I have not, but I will. I'm excited to hear it. it I appreciate makes me... him filling in for me. That was that was great. I had a lot going on. and the show I know, must you were... Go on. You were super stressed. I like texted you. <laughs> I could tell through your text that you were like, "Oh, um, uh, and I was like, "Don't even worry. About it. You're yeah. all good. You're yeah. set." You know, I'm in a new position in my my day job, and things get crazy sometimes. I'm like, "Yeah, everything's going good," and then like four people will come to me, and like I just feel like at this point, my job is solving problems, everybody's problems, and so it's just like. Everything is my problem. <laughs> yeah, Shane is the equal sign because he solves all the problems. Mm. Um, you like that? I just came mm-hmm. up with that off cuff. Um, I liked it. <laughs> I did too. But something <laughs> that it 
being with John and talking to him made me realize is one thing I do kind of miss is cross exam. Yeah. Um, I miss having those. Maybe we'll do one quick one at the end of the season, or maybe we'll bring it back. I don't know. Um, it's weird because like we kind of already do a lot of cross exam type things in these episodes right. now. However, right. listeners, if you want us to bring back cross exam, I have no problem doing that. The more I can sit down and talk to my friend Shane and my friend John, <laughs> I'll do it. I don't care. Yes. <laughs> I'll get some questions from listeners. I, I, I would be happy to. Um, I also don't know, Shane, if you've been following me on, on TikTok. Uh, I know I you're admittedly not, don't have a TikTok account. That's probably for the best. Yeah. Um, I do a whole bunch of cool stuff on there. So maybe I'll put like a poll up on there. Nice. Um, and no, it's not to dance ladies. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> um, but like I said before, we're talking about the Circleville letters today. Uh, we're traveling over to Circleville, Ohio. How original. Uh, a community once plagued by threatening letters over the course of 20 years. Threatening to expose rather dark secrets and unravel and destroy everything. This is the foreboding case of the Circleville letters. Let's dive right in. Is it more than 10 feet? Because I don't uh, want to break my neck. By diving in, uh, it's like eight and a half. Okay, well, I'll I'll pencil dive in. Belly flop? Mm-hmm, maybe. <laughs> Our story begins in the small rural town of Circleville, Ohio, around twenty-five miles south of Columbus, in the year nineteen seventy-six. When residents in this town started receiving anonymous letters, they were all postmarked by Columbus, with no return address and handwritten in odd block-type letters. All of these letters were abundant with details about their private lives, the writer clearly being someone who was very familiar with the personal information about the residents, even secrets that most people wouldn't know about. One such person who received a letter was Gordon Massey, the superintendent of Westfall Schools in Circleville. On the morning of March 3, 1977, Massey arrived to work to find a letter waiting for him. It read the following. Dear Sir, According to my GF, you have asked her to go out many times and have asked the other female bus drivers too. This must stop at once for the good of the school and the families. If they are not stopped, I will be forced to write to the school board, and I would hate to do that. To prey on another man's girl is untouchable. I suggest you find yourself a pimple-faced whore and start up with her and leave my girls alone. So first off, two, two, two things about this. One, interesting. <laughs> First thing, first thing I have a, a, a big problem with. One, using the word whore. Don't, don't do that. How about, how about we don't do that? Um, especially when you're referring to pimple-faced and this guy works at a high school, I'm pretty sure. Um, maybe, maybe don't use that. Maybe don't use that. This was obviously a different time, uh, like 50 years ago, but maybe don't talk about having relations with students. Second thing, this guy wrote GF. As in girl, he was also like talking girlfriend. about bus drivers, though. That's true. Um... But he said GF. Like, why didn't he just write out girlfriend? Yeah. Like, honestly, this is going to sound. This, I mean, I'm 
34 now, but I honestly didn't know that GF was a term used back 50 years ago. I didn't either. That's I like a that weird... Was, yeah, I thought that was a more modern term. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> did, did, were people, like, were cavemen using LOL at some <laughs> point? What is happening? Were they texting each other on their, like, rotodial phones? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you think... <laughs> Rotary? Do you... Do you think that GF actually just means gluten-free in this situation? <laughs> According to my gluten-free, <laughs> my diet says that you can't talk to women. <laughs> that was like the greatest voice I've ever heard. <laughs> I don't know if I can go in the pool. I've had water. I had food about 20 minutes ago. I'm feeling very naughty right now. <laughs> I, I, I'm lactose intolerant, but guess what I ordered? <laughs> A quesadilla. <laughs> Continuing on. That letter was the first of many that followed, each one with escalating threats, such as one letter saying that they would cut the brake lines of Massey's car if he did not stop sleeping with his female employees. That same day, the school board received a similar letter asserting that Massey had assaulted and sometimes even carried on affairs with some of the female bus drivers. The letter also demanded that Massey be fired, but Massey denied everything, and he ultimately wasn't fired because there was no proof of his wrongdoing. However, the vice principal received a letter a few weeks later that read the following. Dear school, talk to Gordon Massey about his affairs. I shall warn you, I know the truth. I want to protect your school. It has a good reputation. You should keep it like that. I shall send you proof about driver number 62917. She has a child in school there now. I shall prove this shortly. I expect him then to be discharged. You'll see that I'm telling the truth. Despite the letter not naming the bus driver, the writer used an employee number. I don't know if you noticed that. I did. Making I also noticed that he said, Dear school, <laughs> instead of like any <laughs> instead of anybody in particular. Imagine like Dear school Dear bank Please deposit $200 into my account <laughs> Well it, uh, Here's the thing This letter was addressed to the vice principal <laughs> He knows the exact Like employee number Of this employee But doesn't know the name of the vice principal <laughs> That this is going to <laughs> That's strange to me All on its own Oh are you bleeding right now? Second. Yeah. Bleeding? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like trying to figure out where to wipe the blood, but I gotta go get a band-aid. I'll be right back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or whiskey hell? too. I wanted whiskey and I didn't happened? know how to ask, so I just started bleeding. Yeah, you just cut yourself. <laughs> Please wait one moment while Shane goes to get a band-aid. Thank you for your continued support of the Raving Lunatic Elevator. We'll be right back after a word from these messages. Oh, just kidding, we're already back. 
Did you get a, like a cool Paw Patrol Band-Aid? Um, we only had like gigantic knee band-aids and knuckle band-aids, so I took a knuckle band-aid. It would have been way funnier if you took one of the knee ones. <laughs> <laughs> Just my opinion. Just wrapped around my finger three times. Hey, let's do a, a visual gag on this audio form podcast. <laughs> you get a giant band-aid and we laugh about it real hard. <laughs> Not even like the the gauze pad on my finger, just the adhesive like wrapped around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Despite the letter not naming the bus driver, the writer used an employee number, making the details specific to the point where only someone with private knowledge of the school's employees would have that kind of information. It just so happened that the employee number belonged to a woman named Mary Gillespie. Mary Gillespie led a relatively quiet life with her husband Ron and their two children, and her reputation among the community was someone who was a good friend, loving wife, and a devoted mother, and she also had a very close circle of friends and family as well. She was very well-liked, and that was hardly someone one would think of being caught up in such a scandal, at least until she received a letter in March of 1977. One morning, Mary opened her mailbox to find a letter written in the same block letters as the letter sent to Gordon Massey. It read, Mrs. Gillespie, stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about meeting him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified, and everything will be over soon. That's creepy. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember this. I remember it very vividly, because it's one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done. Do you remember The Watcher? Yes. This is reminding me a lot of that case. Yeah, definitely. It's got a very eerie vibe, and... um bringing her children into it like without even a threatening just saying i know you have children and then like carrying on like that was very yeah. creepy you as a dad especially like you hold like i'm i myself i'm a, a dog dad that's what i have <laughs> so like if somebody was like i know you have a dog i'd probably be like yeah isn't he cool but you you have <laughs> you you have kids like like so it probably hits a little deeper for you mm-hmm. like, like if you got a letter like that you'd be like Hey, we're getting out of here, Lil. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's getting a little creepy. I, I like, or I don't like, uh, I, I, I find, I think the last line is very creepy because it, it, it's very assuring. Like mm-hmm. on his, on this, the, whoever's sending the letters. This will be end. over soon. Yes. Uh, everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. That's, that's creepy to me. Yeah. That's the part that's getting me. I was like, ooh. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that the situation is not in my control right now. Where, yeah. like, you have to handle this. Despite the letter obviously upsetting Mary, she opted to keep it to herself and not tell her husband Ron about it. She would receive more letters in the incoming weeks, each letter escalating in threats and revealing more and more personal information. Because Mary kept ignoring the letters, 
the anonymous writer decided to start sending letters to her husband, Ron. Long story short, the letter to Ron described Mary's supposed affair with Massey, threatening to kill Ron if he stood by and did nothing. The writer also claimed to know where Ron worked, and even described Ron's red and white pickup truck, highlighting the personal details. Stalker. Yeah. Not, not cool. Yeah, this has the watcher all over it. It's so it does. crazy. Um, letters. Like, what? when are we just going to start like being like, hey, let's start putting the cameras in our mailbox. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a smart idea. Um, yeah. This was obviously 1977, so they didn't have that luxury, but right. like... Maybe we start doing it now so that this doesn't happen to us. <laughs> uh, we have ring doorbells. Why can't we have ring mailboxes? Right. Uh, there you go. Pitch it to Amazon. And then they'll, they'll buy it. And then they'll also like make their own version of it. So it'll be cheaper and you won't get any money. Yeah. Hey, uh, Big Daddy <laughs> Jeff Bezos. I buy way too much product from you. Please throw me a bone here. <laughs> Half the stuff in my room is from your Amazon warehouse. (laughs) (laughs) This, of course, caused Ron to confront Mary about the letters, and she denied having an affair with Massey, but admitted that she had been receiving these letters for weeks. So, both Mary and Ron decided to just keep ignoring the letters, but Ron received yet another letter two weeks later, The writer said that he was aware that Ron had done nothing about Mary's affair with Massey, and he threatened that if she didn't come out with the truth, the writer would put up billboards and signs everywhere and broadcast the truth on Citizens Band, or CB Radio. And to make things even more alarming, besides the letters, Mary and Ron also kept getting phone calls from the person they believed was the writer. So two things. Uh, first thing is this guy's kind of de-escalating, it seems, because mm-hmm. he threatened to kill Ron if he didn't do anything and then just kind of never went through with it. And then immediately was like, I'm going to go on CB radio <laughs> and expose the truth. Hey, you know, CB radio could have been a, th- a big thing back then. Yeah, it could have been the TikTok of, of 1977. <laughs> Go follow Matt Rockstar on TikTok. This is this is TikTok. Papa Bear, you here? This is uh, Matt Rockstar, and today we're talking uh, cold cases. <laughs> and then you just hear, shut up, I'm trying to drive. <laughs> uh, it, it's weird, though. Like, I think... I think the weirdest thing is this guy is very inconsistent with his threats. Like, he goes from, I'm going to kill you, married Gillespie, to... Tell your husband. And then she didn't tell her husband. And then he sent letters to Ron was like, hey, start confronting Massey or I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Oh, you're not confronting Massey. I'm going to go on CB radio and expose the truth. It's weird. You, you better, you better do it or I'm going to do something. Yeah. You better. <laughs> that feels like a Simpsons gag for whatever <laughs> reason. There's so many episodes of Simpsons that that's probably a gag at some point, right? <laughs> If it's not one thing, if this doesn't gonna scare you, I bet CB Radio will do it. Yeah. If me not, if me ki- me not killing you didn't scare you enough, oh, you better wait until I get, get get to truth in on the CB. 
this guy he's kind of a joke at this point like i i probably wouldn't be taking this guy too seriously either at this point like uh he said he was gonna do all these things but he never he never did <laughs> not knowing what to do or who to tell about the threatening letters and calls ron and mary turned to their family for help and support namely ron's sister karen sue and karen's husband paul Freshour. The four of them put together a list of suspects, including another bus driver named David Longberry, whom Mary suspected from the very beginning. But we'll talk more about the reasons why later on in the episode. They decided that Paul Freshour would write to Longberry, saying that they knew what Longberry was doing and that if he did not stop, they would go to the police. And for a while, miraculously, the letter stopped and everything seemed to go back to normal for a while. But not for long. In August of 1977, signs started appearing all over Circleville, and I mean literal signs posted all over the place, and they were written in the same block font as the letters. The signs basically accused Gordon Massey of having an affair with not only Mary, but also with Mary's daughter, Tracy, who, by the way, was only 12 years old at the time. So, yeah, this writer was definitely pushing some buttons, particularly Ron's and Mary's. Every morning after that, Ron would get up and drive around town to remove the signs so that his wife and children wouldn't see them posted everywhere on the way to work and to school. Husband of the year, right? Like, yeah, like... Like getting up extra I'm, early I'm just trying like to imagine I don't these signs to like are these like like paper banners did someone like imagine like imagine like like a wooden stick and then like a piece of giant cardboard on it that just has like giant block letters that says like Massey and Mary sitting in a tree <laughs> K I S S I N G um they did not say that by the way they said <laughs> a lot worse things like this guy is with a 12 year old um but like i said this this guy ron husband of the year like getting up extra early to go around town and be like hey i'm gonna take all these signs down so that my wife and kids don't have to worry about this and being harassed yeah like great guy like i hope nothing bad happens to him (laughs) that's called foreshadowing let's continue (laughs) eventually Mary would go out of town for a while to clear her head while her husband Ron stayed home with their kids. On the evening of August 17, 1977, the Gillespie's home phone rang, and Ron answered. The caller claimed that he was watching their home and knew what Ron's truck looked like. This enraged Ron, who ranted over the phone that he recognized the voice and he was going to put a stop to the harassment. Ron hung up the phone, grabbed his gun, kissed his daughter, and then he got into his red pickup truck and drove off into the night to go after the culprit behind these letters. In a dark, tragic turn, around 10.25 p.m., he was killed after his truck crashed straight into a tree. Ron had evidently failed to make a turn on a familiar road not far from his house. He was thrown from the truck and later declared dead upon being taken to the hospital. 
so angry. So yeah. much rage that he didn't even like remember when to turn. Yeah. That's there funny. there I could I could definitely see some conspiracy theorists saying like, oh, was there somebody else in the car maybe? Mm-hmm. Like in the back of the car that maybe like scared him and like made him spooked. There's also theories that Ron may have been drinking that day, but Yeah. I mean yeah. gotta take the edge off somehow, I guess. <laughs> Especially with everything that's happening to in his life. <laughs> I only slightly blame him. Dwight Radcliffe who was the sheriff of Pickaway County in Ohio, arrived at the scene of the accident and found something very bewildering. A bullet had been fired from Ron's gun, but no bullet hole was found anywhere, nor any sign of the bullet. Ron's family believed that Ron had actually caught up with the letter writer and fired a shot at him, losing control of his truck in the process. The other theory from the family was that Ron could have been run off the road by presumably the writer, which led to his fatal crash. However, because of Ron's autopsy showing that his alcohol levels were twice the legal limit, Sheriff Radcliffe believed that Ron's death was a road rage accident because of being drunk. But Ron's family didn't believe that, saying that Ron was never much of a drinker and never would have left his kids home unless he had an urgent reason to rush out. Ultimately, Sheriff Radcliffe wouldn't investigate Ron's death further, ruling it an accident. And Ron's family couldn't even look at the damaged truck because it had been sent to the junkyard and crushed only mere days after the accident. Also, apparently, the police had a suspect in custody for Ron's death, but he had passed a polygraph test. The suspect's name was also never released publicly because of everything that was happening. The residents of Circleville seemed to have a full-blown conspiracy on their hands, which was exacerbated by even more letters that came, which accused the sheriff of covering up the truth. But Radcliffe didn't act on any of the hubbub. Two years later, Mary Gillespie admitted that she was having an affair with Gordon Massey, but after receiving the letters, and after the death of her husband, Ron. Apparently, the trauma they both experienced brought them closer together. Who knows if she was being honest about that, so... Take, take, that, take that with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. I, it, yes, we had an affair, but it was after my husband died, so... It was after all the accusations. <laughs> it was after everybody already knew. <laughs> Um, but Mary's hope was, oh, go ahead. Everyone thought they were doing it already, so why they might as well have. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But Mary's hope was that by coming out with the affair, the letters would stop. But over the next seven years, the letters kept coming, and they didn't stop coming. Bend to the rules, and it hit the ground running. Shout out (laughs) Steve from Smash Mouth, who recently passed away. Um, you never know if you don't go, and you never shine if you don't glow. Hey, now. <laughs> uh, might as well be walking on the sun. Might as well. But over the next seven years, the letters kept coming. Some of them calling Mary. <laughs> We're having too much fun with this man. Mm-hmm. This guy just died, and his wife was cheating on him the entire time. 
We shouldn't be laughing about that. She wasn't cheating on me the entire time. It happened afterwards. After. <laughs> <laughs> it happened after, guys, I swear. <laughs> but over the next seven years, the letters kept coming. Some of them calling Mary a cheater, a murderer, and a homewrecker. Other letters even threatened her children. And on top of that, signs were being posted all over town again, specifically on Mary's bus route. So she and her kids could see them. One of these notes even simply read, I won't forget. In 1983, Mary was driving her bus near an intersection where she saw another sign posted which had much more filthy language and gross insinuations of a relationship between Gordon Massey and Mary's daughter. When Mary stopped the bus and got out to go grab the sign, she saw that a piece of string was attached to the sign and connected to a box. Inside the box contained a gun that was propped up by styrofoam blocks with a string specifically connected to the trigger. When the police examined it later, they found that the gun was loaded and set to fire. And if Mary had pulled on the sign while standing in front of it, she could have been fatally shot by the gun. Dang. Yeah. That guy is a mousetrap master. Like, where do you come up with this, this stuff, man? Like, that's... And, like, why do you care so much about somebody's personal life? Like, very, like we're going to get to some of this stuff in theories. And right. We're, we're going to talk about it, and we're it's not going to get very much clearer, because obviously this case is unsolved. Uh, I just can't so imagine, like, thinking that somebody I knew had an affair and caring so much about their life that I was writing them threatening letters and, like, setting up guns to kill them. I would yeah, just unless, be like, oh my gosh, so-and-so is having an affair with somebody. I can't believe that. And then I would carry on with my day. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> unless you're directly involved in the situation, yeah. why do you care? At this point, it was clear that the writer was no longer messing around. It seemed that, disturbingly, he was now playing for blood. And also, through more investigation it was discovered that the gun belonged to Mary and Ron's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. Paul and Karen Sue Freshour had been the ones that Ron and Mary had originally gone to for help in tracking down the letter writer years ago. And since Ron's death, Paul had been trying to find answers. When questioned by the police about the gun, Freshour, a local businessman, freely acknowledged that it was his gun but it had been stolen and he had apparently forgotten to report the theft. What made the police's suspicions towards Paul grow was that according to company records, Paul had taken the day off on the same day that the box trap had been found by Mary Gillespie. Even though Paul had an alibi for that day, Sheriff Radcliffe still brought him in for questioning. The sheriff showed Paul some of the past letters and asked Paul to copy them as best as he could. Paul obliged and did so. Radcliffe also asked Paul to write out a couple sentences in the same block handwriting, which Paul did. The sheriff claimed that there was a perfect match 
and subsequently placed Paul under arrest for Mary Gillespie's attempted murder. However, Freshour claimed his innocence, saying that the letter writer was setting him up and was behind everything. Paul also argued that if Sheriff Radcliffe had done his job properly, none of this would have happened. Despite all that, Paul was found guilty and sentenced to up to 35 years in prison. So, I'm gonna heavy. go out on yeah, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that if this guy is cooperating so much, probably not him, right? Like, yeah, that was my gun. Like, it was stolen. I didn't report the theft. Uh, I apologize about that, and and I, I I'm very confused as to how it ended up here. Trying to kill my sister-in-law. Oh, you need me to come in for questioning? Yeah, I'll come in for questioning. I'll come and do that. Oh, you want me to, to write down and co- try to copy these as best I can? Yeah, sure, I'll do that. Oh, you want me to copy a couple, a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, a few of these words are perfect matches? Yeah, you asked me to copy them! Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and like... I tend to agree. I feel like saying that he forgot to report his gun was missing is kind of a weird phrasing of that. Like, oh, yeah, that's my gun. I I did get it stolen. I just forgot to say that. Um, But at the same time, yeah, that's it. That's interesting. I don't think that, it's like you said, he was being super cooperative and... Yeah. I don't know. I don't like, know. this was also in, what, 84, I want to say? So, right. I mean, like, there, he's probably on some form of drugs. <laughs> That's, <laughs> like, this is the height of, like, the weed era back in the 80s, so you're probably, like, not remembering to report your gun theft because you have a pound of weed in your backyard for some reason. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, so it seemed that justice had been served, except while Fresh Hour was in prison, the letters kept coming. Oh, snap. Now, how does one explain that, I wonder? <laughs> Not only did the letters keep coming, but they were going to people all over central Ohio. Not Are you saying just the letters kept them. coming and they kept on coming? Bent to the rules and I hit the ground running. <laughs> Did it make sense not to live for fun? Your brain gets smart, but your head gets dumb. That's me every single time I hop on this mic. <laughs> my brain gets smart, but my head gets dumb. <laughs> not only did the letters keep coming, but they were going to people all over central Ohio, not just Circleville anymore. One such letter went to the prosecutor in Paul's case, accusing him of corruption. Another letter went to the coroner of Ron Gillespie's autopsy, accusing the coroner of child abuse. Incidentally, the child abuse accusations actually turned out to be true, which could infer that there was some kind of cover-up happening. But in any event, over 1,000 letters went out to Ohio residents. Some of them were even dusted with some kind of poison. Sheriff Radcliffe believed that even behind bars, Paul Freshour was still responsible for writing the letters, and he demanded that the warden do something to stop him. But the warden insisted that there was no way for Paul Freshour to possibly be writing and sending out those letters. In fact, 
Even when Fresh Hour was in solitary confinement, there were still letters being sent out. In 1990, when Fresh Hour was up for parole, the parole board said that he was not ready to reintegrate into society because they believed that he was still sending the hate mail. But the warden, speaking up for Paul, said that he was a model prisoner and again insisted that there was no possible way that he was writing the letters. Despite that, the board denied Fresh Hour his parole, and not long after that, Paul himself would receive this letter. Fresh Hour Now when are you going to believe that you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? No one wants you out. No one. The joke is on you. Ha. Ha. Tell no one of this letter. I saw the paper. Great news. Great. The sheriff loved it. Ha. Ha. Do you believe it now? Do you? This guy wrote out ha ha <laughs> twice in a letter. JK LOL. <laughs> this guy is so a time traveler. <laughs> wrote GF and also ha ha. <laughs> it would be weird if it was like actually a time traveler though. Why would mm-hmm. he do this to these people? Matt, is um, it you? Is it you? Just be honest. I need to go. <laughs> that's blast. a callback to two episodes previous <laughs> in 1999 Paul was finally released from prison and interestingly enough around the time of his release the letters stopped coming and even to this day there haven't been any more of them since officially the case of the Circleville letters was closed when Paul Freshour was arrested But Paul, even after his release from prison, continued to proclaim his innocence until his death in 2012. But as you can see by the story that has just been told, it was so fascinating and filled with so many twists and turns and discrepancies and enigmas that there is no way it could have been that cut and dry. So now, with most of the story told, let's get into the suspects and possible theories of who or what was behind the Circleville letters. I like the or what. (laughs) It was the dog. (laughs) Whose dog, you might ask? Nicole Brown's. (gasps) If the dog fits. Going back to Ornville. (laughs) I I get a chuckle every time I, I, I see that man's name. It's football season now, so we have to talk about Ornville every once in a while. So, our first suspect is the man we already talked about at length, Paul Freshour. It seemed pretty cut and dry for most people that he was the man behind the letters, because it was his gun in the box, and the handwriting was similar to his. It's as simple as that for many people. I guess the question is, is it theoretically possible for Freshour to have still sent hundreds of letters while serving behind bars in a hundred miles away from Circleville? And is it possible 
that he could have done it while not being noticed in the act at all. It could be a stretch, especially if you take the warden at his word that Paul was a model prisoner. But sure. Is it possible? Yeah, sure. Anything's Likely? possible with Popsicle. <laughs> what is that? Is that Rocket Pop? No, 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 no. Who is that? <laughs> Thanks, man of Popsicle. Oh. <laughs> is it likely? <laughs> eh, that's another story entirely, though. Who knows? Uh, Paul Freshour. He was suspect number one. We still got three, three more theories. Are you ready for these ones? Because I'm I don't ready think you for are. these ones. So earlier I mentioned a name, kind of a still kind of a funny name. I, I was talking to John last episode about how I think all the people with the funniest names just decide to go into true crime. <laughs> <laughs> like they're just like I'm gonna go and be an un- unsolved case somehow. Because our next suspect, for this. I was destined for this. Our next suspect's name is David Longberry. Mm. He was a bus driver, and someone mentioned earlier in this episode, Mary Gillespie had suspected Longberry from the very beginning of the entire situation. This was because David had made a few passes at Mary, and then became bitter and resentful when Mary rejected him. On top of that, Longberry was already a deeply disturbed person, and later got caught abusing a young girl. Because of that, he skipped town in 1993, which was around the same time that the letters finally stopped. Longberry was on the run for his sexual offense before eventually dying by suicide. Perhaps Longberry had severe mental health issues that sent him on a personal vendetta against Mary, Gordon Massey, and others in the community. Perhaps Longberry was the suspect that the police had detained after Ron Gillespie's death. Since the suspect's name was never released, it could stand to reason. But again, who knows for sure. How do we feel about Mr. Longberry here? Scumbag alert. Obviously. Um, it's, it's tough. An, it, I mean, it, the guy's obviously got some heavy baggage. Yeah, but, and stuff is lining up too. Like, yeah. With the letters and everything, mm-hmm. and when they're start or when they're stopping, when he's like ditching town and right the, all the way until his his death. So I could definitely see a, especially if he's making passes at Mary. Um, I don't like it. Uh, here's the thing. I cannot put myself fully into the mind of somebody who is truly mentally disturbed. Cause I myself, thanks to the Lord, I'm not truly mentally disturbed. My little weird. Yes. <laughs> I'm not truly relative. mentally disturbed though. Yes. Um, but like I, I can't just wrap my head around somebody going to these lengths after basically getting rejected for by by a woman mm-hmm. who, by the way, was married. Mm-hmm. External affairs, uh, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> withstanding. I don't know. 
What? What a crazy guy. But we're gonna move on to our next suspect, who is a really interesting suspect in all of this. Her name is Karen Sue Freshour, Paul's wife, and Ron Gillespie's sister. Many investigators include one Martin Yant. Many investigators, including one Martin Yant, said that they believed people should take a closer look at Karen Sue for possible motives behind writing the letters. During this entire ordeal, Paul and Karen were actually going through a very sour, contentious divorce. According to Yant, who was investigating the entire case, he said that he had never seen anyone hate their husband more than Karen hated her ex-husband during this time. While Yant was investigating, he had apparently discovered a witness that could lead to Paul's exoneration. And despite this witness making herself available to the defense, she was never called as a witness. Additionally, the witness was also a bus driver that had a similar route to Mary Gillespie's. And interestingly enough, around 20 minutes before Mary saw and found the sign and box trap, this driver sighted a tall, sandy-haired man on the side of the road, standing next to a vehicle, specifically an El Camino. And the El Camino was parked near where the sign was found, 20 minutes later, by Mary. Also, Karen Sue, during this ugly divorce, happened to be dating a man described to be tall, sandy-haired, just like the man that the bus driver saw. And to make things more interesting, while Karen's boyfriend didn't own an El Camino, her brother, Ron, had before he had died. This would all seem to imply that Karen Sue was indeed responsible and there are plenty of motives for her to have done so as well. For one thing, there was Mary Gillespie's affair with Gordon Massey. Karen Sue could have been angry that Mary was cheating on her brother Ron with Massey, despite Mary not admitting to it at the time. Also, it would make sense for Karen to frame her ex-husband Paul for the murder of Ron. Yeah. And that would solve a lot of things for her in one foul swoop. But why would she frame Paul? Well, during the divorce, Paul basically got everything out of it, including the retirement savings. Karen Sue had essentially lost everything, including her home, custody of their daughters, and had been living in a trailer on somebody else's property, by the way. Even Paul Freshour's lawyer during the trial suggested this possibility during his closing argument. I'm going to go ahead and give a quote from him now. Who hated Paul enough to try and get him into trouble? If you read the divorce decree, who stands to profit financially if Paul is convicted and goes to prison? So yes... If Paul was out of the picture because he went to prison, Karen Sue would basically get everything. Paul even insisted during the ordeal that this was her plan all along. 
Also, Karen was actually one of the first people to link Paul to these letters. In fact, she had told investigators that she found some of them in her home. However, she testified against her ex-husband in court and was asked about the letters. She said that she threw them out. So, they couldn't be presented as any kind of evidence. Another interesting detail. Yeah, we're still not done yet. Another interesting detail should be brought up too. During the divorce, Karen Sue had gone to visit Paul's sister, asking to borrow a typewriter. Despite Paul's sister thinking that this was strange, that this was a strange thing to ask, she let Karen borrow it. Sure enough, around that same time, the circle of the letters were no longer being handwritten. In that infamous block lettering, obviously. But they were now becoming typed. Hmm. So, now, does this prove that Karen Sue was the one who was writing the letters? No, obviously not. Despite a negative portrait of Karen Sue being painted by people like Martin Yant, others have come to her defense saying that she was on the receiving end of the abuse from her husband, and that Paul was still the real culprit. So what? how do we feel about Karen Sue? Do you think she had enough Karen in her to write to the manager? Enough Karen to sue? <laughs> Um, well, she did sue. You know, apparently there's a lot there to unpack. There um, is. So, I kind of giving like, like like a Cliff Notes version. Like, I, I I just went through a lot right there. Giving a Cliff Notes version, kind of just to run it down real quick. So this guy Martin yeah, is like, yo, Karen Sue acting super sus. Um. So while Gant was investigating, he was like, hey, uh. I have this witness who said that she saw a guy near this trap that was set for uh, 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 Miss Gillespie. Mm-hmm. And he was this tall dude, sandy hair, drove an El Camino. And at the time, uh, Karen's boyfriend looked exactly like that. Now, going through this time, her and Paul were apparently having a lot of marital problems, which obviously could be motive uh my biggest like thing with this case is why why like ron's death that's the thing that throws a huge wrench into like the karen sue theory it's like what if she is responsible for these letters and everything why is ron dead yeah unless it would like and why is she abusing ron like that like to keep up the act and also on the phone calls I don't know if this is true, but from what it seemed like, it seemed like it was a guy calling because everybody was like, oh, it's this Longberry guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that obviously Karen Sue has all these motives to do so. I think that it could be a situation where it's like she's maybe taking advantage of her ex-husband's like, like, oh, like if this happens i can i can take advantage of this like instead of being like oh i don't think you did it like maybe she's just lying or something i don't know yeah what do, what do you think i don't know i think there's a lot of evidence there but i i agree it's kind of almost like too easy like because why is he dead 
What's yeah? Where does like it? It's all more towards Paul. That was the guy's name, right? Paul, who was Paul, yeah, a, yeah. who was arrested. Like all of this is going. Like, did she really murder somebody just to frame Paul? I mean, that, I guess it's not no. out of the question at this. Her point. own brother at that too. Like, yeah, murder her own brother to make yeah. a point to her now ex-husband. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. What's their relationship? What's her and her brother's relationship? Is it not the best? Is it... I, I, I don't know. There's a lot there. I mean, even at that, though, like, Shane, your brother. Would you ever kill your brother? Like... I wouldn't. I wouldn't, but... Yeah. That doesn't mean... I have I have really good relationship with my brothers, but... Shout out Tabletop Beard. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag something hashtag tabletop um yeah the the more we talk about this theory the more i don't like it particularly not not saying that in itself it's wrong i think there's a lot of weird evidence here that could lead to like a weird backdoor thing where like maybe karen sue just kind of took advantage of the situation and really put the drive on paul i don't think that paul did it though if that's a weird thing to say then maybe it's a weird thing to say but I don't think that Paul did it and I think that Karen just kind of saw this like way to get her life back get her kids get the house get all the retirement money and she was like oh shoot I need to take advantage of this ASAP or else like my life is gonna suck so she's sending this guy that she doesn't like away so that she can have her life with her kids and everything. So I could I could see something like that instead. I, I'm like talking myself through it in my brain right now. It's starting to make more sense. I don't know if it's starting to make sense to you, but it's starting to make sense to me. In my head. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. I mean, there's a lot of links, but also with every link, there's another gap in that theory in that theory yeah there's there's a giant gap and then like (laughs) but but it's like it's like oh solid line Marianas Trench oh solid line (laughs) it's weird I don't know continuing though with our last theory is that there's a possibility that there are multiple people who are responsible for the circle of the letters and perhaps could have been a united group so i don't know if you recall one of the letters that paul freshour received while in prison but one specifically stated i told you two years ago when we set them up they stay set up Mm -hmm. now i don't know if you caught it but that letter used the pronoun we instead of i which could imply the involvement of more than one person the basis of this theory is is the idea that it would have been very difficult for just one person to have access to everyone's personal information, which was contained in letters. For example, Paul and Karen Freshour may have may have known that Mary and Ron Gillespie pretty well, but how likely would it have been that they knew Mary's bus driver employee number? It would seem more logical to assume that somebody who worked for the school and knew the system would have access to that kind of information. Plus, 
The notion of more than one person being behind the letters could also explain why the letters continued even after Paul Freshour was sent to prison. So holy cow. Um, basically, blackmail ring is, is mm-hmm. this last theory. Just like kind of throwback to like episode three, Keddy Cabin. Like a town full of just like, we're going to blackmail everybody that we don't like, essentially. Uh, everybody get all the information you have. We're going to get all the dirt, get all this together, and we're going to make people's lives miserable. Uh, so for me, this show has kind of tainted me <laughs> because it would have been hard for me to believe that um, like-minded people like this could just find each other and and like you know, work together, like, but uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the group. I think it was in Chicago. I believe I did an episode on it back on Case Close. Chicago, the Ripper Crew? Yes. Were that I, to I me have was no like, idea how. Yes. <laughs> that yes. came to my I mind. Remembered, I remembered the crimes they committed because they were very heinous and they were very grotesque, but I could not remember yes. the Ripper Crew. That, to me, was like... How do you find one person where you're like, we should go murder somebody, let alone three other people who you're like, nah. let's let's go murder and, and rape. It's just going to be so much fun. So like at the surface of this theory, I do think like that seems hard to believe because there's so many people involved, but then I think about the Ripper crew, and I'm like, well, yeah. then there's always that possibility. Yeah. It's weird, because, like, I can't understand the final motive of mm-hmm. this group, but when you get a whole bunch of weirdos together and insane people, there can also just be no motive for it. Yeah, exactly. It could just the be motive- cause as much chaos as possible. Exactly. <sighs> And it could have started, I, I don't want to say innocently, but it could have been like, oh, let's just send these picture, these these letters out. It'll be a funny prank. And then you could just watch from afar and then just see how the stress mounts on these people's lives. Yeah. I don't know. So th- There you have it. Those are the four main theories. Uh, there are some other suspects, like smaller ones, uh, that and nobody really knows who's responsible for this. Uh, but some of the other smaller suspects that we didn't discuss today is Gordon Massey, Gordon Massey's son William, and some other weirdos around the time. Um, <laughs> like, we also don't know details, like how Paul Freshour believed that his gun was stolen by his distraught, depressed son Mark, and he didn't report the theft because he didn't want his son to go to jail, too. There's that theory. Um, there are many fascinating things to pick apart in this case, but it it would only highlight it further just how disturbing this entire ordeal was and how it affected, and in some cases ruined so many lives in the process. I, I guess it can go to show that in some cases there are no heroes and there are no villains. It's just just people with dark and light sides to them. I would say that in this one, there there's a lot of gray area where it's like, uh. Also, 
It goes to show that while secrets can be dangerous, the actions of one person or several people uh, can bring them to light and be even deadlier. So Shane, now yeah. is the part of the show where I like to ask you, who done it? What is your final verdict? It's a tough one. It really is. Um, it is. I think ultimately, though, I, I have to go with Karen. I know we don't have a great motive for it. Besides just screwing over her ex-husband. Yeah. I'm just going to have to believe that that was a good enough motive for her. Yeah. I can get behind that. What do you think? For me, I'm going kind of a mix of two things. I think David Longbury was responsible for a lot of it. Um, if you're disturbed in the mind, you're disturbed in the mind. We talked about this with the Rupert group just moments ago. Yeah. If you're disturbed in the mind, you're disturbed in the mind. That's, and, and apparently he was. And if he was rejected by Mary quite a few times, it seems, after a couple passes... I could definitely see a man who is mentally disturbed kind of going to these lengths, especially especially if he has a dis, a mental disorder that, that could affect him in, in a way where he gets obsessive. Um, I can see that. Kind of coupling that, though, when Paul Freshour, when his gun was taken, I could also see that this guy who was disturbed said that he was stalking several houses went into one of those houses being the fresh hours and maybe have taken that gun i'm not saying that that is definite that is definitely a long stretch that is a stretch by most means however i could definitely see it because he's known to be a stalker whoever this person was and then maybe taking it setting paul up because this guy was apparently known to set people up and when he was doing that um kind of got paul in trouble and Karen Sue kind of took advantage of that and kind of ruined Paul's life. I I don't want to say Paul is innocent because obviously he could be guilty of this. Mm -hmm. However, it kind of does suck in this situation if you are Paul. The situation that I just described, it does suck if you are Paul. Right, and you're like, right. I didn't do this. I'm being set up by my <laughs> jerk of an ex-wife. <laughs> um, I couldn't imagine that. Like, that would suck. Um, but y'all know what doesn't suck, Shane? What doesn't suck, Matt? Some of the other awesome shows here on Raving Lunatic <gasps> Media. Please oh, tell me more. Well, let me tell you. Let, let me talk to you. So we got some cool shows here on Raving Lunatic Media. We recently just brought back Quick Rants hosted by Scott, where he just yells at a mic, essentially. He recently just talked about how the doctor, uh, or the dentist from Finding Nemo, P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney, uh, is a psychopath and insane. Um, that episode was gut-busting hilarious, and I've listened to it like three times now, and I absolutely love it. Um, you also have Sci-Fi Malady. The guys are going through the old show Sliders, which talks about time travel. If you're interested in that, go check that out. You can also go check out Game Face. Game Face is hosted by me and one of my best friends, Nico. We talk sports. We just talked about football recently. Uh, we, I'm not a huge football guy, uh, but I've been super excited this year for football, college, and NFL both. Um, we talked about Aaron Rodgers longer than he was on the field. Um, 
<laughs> which was which was super fun um so go check game face out and then you can also go check out zodiac task force a uh, new episode will be coming out on september if i remember correctly 23rd go check that out because ztf is winding down for season one and you better jump on this bandwagon before uh before it ends uh you can also go take a listen to the older episodes of cold case chase season four is out right now but you're missing on basically two and a half to three seasons of cold case chase and you can also go check out uh the backlogs of a case of the chills and case closed which was hosted by shane Um, so i would like to announced that i drank coffee from my cold case chase coffee cup this morning oh my goodness i completely forgot about those things <laughs> i have mine downstairs i still yeah. have my cold case chase shirt i uh got a frame for it nice um which was super fun because it doesn't fit me anymore um <laughs> i'm not getting big you're getting big <laughs> i sit down a lot now i don't i'm not as active as i used to be um which needs to change um I also wanted to give a little shout out to Tabletop Beard because Shane is here and I love Tabletop Beard. I'm probably going to be putting in an order probably next week, unless you just want to send it to me. Yeah, and I'll just... I can probably do that. <laughs> uh, I'll, ju- I'll just buy it online. It's fine. Matt had the first order for Tabletop Beard. It was it pretty sweet. I was so... I, was, I told Shane like months in advance. I was like, listen... I better get the first order. <laughs> it's mine. I didn't even, yeah. I think I shaved off my beard like a couple of weeks before. Tattoos, <laughs> so it'd be a fresh beard when it came in. Um, but Shane, do you want to talk about some of the cool stuff you've been doing with uh, TTB? Sure. Uh, we sponsor one stream a month, one live stream a month on the YouTube channel, Dan C bearded. Um, it's all about beards. It's a great channel. Great guy to work with. We also stream, or excuse me, sponsor a live stream weekly on the YouTube channel Constructed Chaos. That's a live Dungeons and Dragons uh, stream. Um, Alex, the Dungeon Master, he's been doing a lot of like uh, videos for us. He's a professional videographer. It kind of was just happenstance that we met him. I like reached out to him based on his YouTube channel, and then found out later that he was amazing at videos. So. Um, that worked out really well. And That's we're awesome. doing a Renaissance Fair in Spokane, Washington in a couple weeks. So looking forward to that. I'm going to set up a booth there and sell the beer to people. Last Renaissance Fair we did, we actually sold probably 65% to women versus 35% to, to men. The ladies like to put it in their hair, like on the ends and before they straighten it and stuff. And uh, it, it, yeah. Uh, my wife Layla, who duh, did Case of the Chills, she's a great saleswoman. <laughs> I, she 100 percent is. Um, <laughs> I completely agree with that. I love Layla. I miss you, Layla. Please come join us for one of these. That would be so much fun. <laughs> um, I guarantee you, she does not listen to these episodes, but that's okay. <laughs> You'll pass the message on. <laughs> yes. Um, so when you said that. Uh, the women were buying them. I thought that the bearded women were finally coming back. No, was, I was no, so excited. We didn't excited. have any bearded women. We had a lot of women come up and ask us what we were selling, and then we explained it, and they were like, "Oh!" And then, you know, we always have our lineup out on the table for people to smell. 
and that's, um, I take a lot of pride in that because I worked very hard on making sure that the smells were, like, great, and I do get a lot of feedback where people are like, oh, that's, I didn't expect to like all of them, I expected to like, like, one or two, I didn't expect them all to smell good, and the way, the approach I took was to make sure that, like, there's something for everybody, because I knew there wouldn't be, you know, I knew that everything wouldn't be for everybody, so, um, to get that feedback's great, so. I personally, uh, top two, Bard and Cleric, uh, shout out to the Ranger, though, uh, love that guy, and then, there's one more that I did like to. Yeah, Ranger is our number one seller. Is it? That's I, w- like I our, probably could have guessed that. Yeah, that is our number one seller. Ranger is our forest, fresh rain, and leather. It's a good one. I like that one a lot. Yeah, it's it's very popular. Oh, Barbarian. That's the other one that I like a lot. Yes, that's a good one. I'm a, I'm a big fan of basically everything. <laughs> <laughs> I have also go coming ch- out soon. I was just about to say that. Also, go check out the website, too. I sometimes just find myself being on there. So go check out the website, (laughs) tabletopbeard.com. Now, Shane, before we leave here, you want to impart us with some wisdom? Yeah. um, You know, the world's a crazy place. Appreciate what you've got. Appreciate the people around you. Um, You know, put out love so you get love back. And um, don't take anything for granted, you know? Today's a good day, tomorrow's a good day, and the next day will be even better. Amen. Roll Tide. And speaking of, we'll see you next time on Cold, Cold Case. Chase. 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 Bye-bye! <laughs>